I don't know about you, but these days a lot of my spare time is spent keeping up with what's going on with the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, I know many of us, we see the war in stark moral terms, and we care deeply about the outcome of that war and the impact it's having on the Ukrainian people. However, a couple of weeks ago, as I was reading up on what's happening in the Donbas area, a thought crossed my mind, like, and a question that popped in my head, and I, I was thinking, I wonder how many wars there's been in my lifetime. So I just kind of jotted down a quick list off the top of my head, the ones I remember, and here's that list. Um, Vietnam, Grenada, it tells, tells you how old I am, right? Vietnam, Grenada, Panama, Iraq 1, Somalia, former Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq 2, Libya, and Syria, and now Ukraine. And uh, I was like, okay, I wonder which ones I missed, which ones I didn't hear about, or which ones I've forgotten. So I did a Google search, and it turns out I didn't miss a few. I missed most of them. You see, okay, okay, so it depends on how you count, okay? Forget, like, my lifetime, okay? Starting from the year 2000 till now, there's been over 100 wars in this world, and there are actually over 40 of them going on right now. As it turns out, we human beings, we fight wars. We fight lots of wars. Wars are not an exceptional event in human history. Wars are the norm. And that dovetails with what the Bible says about who we are. We are broken people living in a broken world. And one of the most obvious ways to know that the world is broken, we fight wars. History progresses, technology advances, and we can't stop fighting wars. We just kill each other in increasingly more creative and more technologically advanced ways. I know, like, that's a really depressing train of thought. Some of you are like, why did I come to church today? Oh my gosh, it's Memorial Day. I know, I get it. I get it. So here's the thing. We need to sit in the darkness of this world before we can truly appreciate the light that God gives. Here at Blackhawk, we often say, hey, Jesus came and died for us on the cross, forgiven our sin, we're reconciled with God. That's the good news. That is the good news. But the good news goes beyond that. What does God have in mind for a world, for a planet that is driven, driven apart by ethnic hatred and by peoples attacking other peoples and killing each other? What does the Bible have to say about that? That's what we're talking about today. Today, we're going to look at a passage that has this impossibly grand vision for our world. And we need to at least have some reminders of the horrors of war before we can truly sit and marvel at the hope that God offers us. Now, before I keep going, let me introduce myself. My name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team. Greetings to those of you who are here and those of you joining us in Traditions, Gospel Fusion, downtown Fitchburg. Shout out to those of you who are watching online and those of you listening to our podcast. To the Chinese speakers, to the Spanish speakers, and to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. We're so glad you're here. Now, we are in a sermon series on the book of Micah. Micah lived about 2,700 years ago. He was a prophet. Uh, God sent him to God's people to tell his people that God is angry. And so Micah's book has two major themes. One is a theme of judgment. The other is a theme of hope. And so for the first three weeks of the series, we talked about judgment. Right? Why is God angry? Well, it turns out 
their society is unjust, and their leaders are corrupt. And then for the last two weeks, uh, Pastor Matt and Pastor Daniel talked to us about Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does God require from his people? It's to do justice, do mishpat, to love mercy, to love chesed, and to walk humbly with God. And so this week and the next week, we're actually now in the section of hope. So, you know, everybody can breathe a sigh of relief. <sighs> All right, hope section. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Micah chapter 4. We're starting with verse 1. This is a very famous passage. You probably heard it before, quoted all over the place. There's something actually interesting about this passage. It's that a version of the same passage shows up in the book of Isaiah chapter 2. And so, immediate question, who wrote, who copied? Nobody knows. I like to think it's Micah because Isaiah gets a lot more press. But okay, so here's Micah chapter 4, verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of Yahweh's temple, when you see the word Lord in all caps, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. The mountain of Yahweh's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come. Let us go to the mountain of Yahweh, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law, the Torah, will go out from Zion, the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples. He will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Instead, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For Yahweh Almighty has spoken. Wow. That's the grand vision. Let's start from the beginning. Okay, when will this happen? Uh, Micah says, last days. Now, what, is that? what does Micah mean by that? So a quick reminder about how the Old Testament people see human history. So the Old Testament divides human history into two periods. There is the former days and the last days. Right? So Micah is his, himself living in the former days. He, he, it's, a, it's, a day, it's a day of brokenness. The world is broken. There's injustice. There's violence. There's hatred. There's illness. There's death. And of course, there is warfare. And he sees a day is coming. A day is coming when God is going to show up big time and he's going to change world history. And he is going to fix one of the biggest problems with our world. And that is this. Verse 3 tells us that he is going to settle disputes for the nations. Yeah, the nations. Now the Hebrew word for nations is goim. Here, the same word over here, goi. It refers to ethnic groups, people groups, language groups, right? And so... What God's going to do is he is going to fix their problems. What Micah is saying is they're gonna, he's going to show up and fix major problems. So imagine India, Pakistan, dealt with. Israel, Palestine, done. In fact, the whole Middle East, done. Russia, Ukraine, the Korean Peninsula, Taiwan Strait, Ethiopia, all the places where war is happening or right on the doorstep, God shows up and he makes peace. Who is God in this passage? He's an international peacemaker. This is who our God is. Our God is a God who makes peace. Now here's the thing. 
the kind of peace that God makes is different from the kind of peace that we humans make. You see, the, the peace that we humans make, they're temporary. They don't last very long. Right? Let's say you have a ceasefire. You sign a peace treaty. What's happening? Well, there's still fear. Right? There's still distrust. There's still anger and anxiety and hatred. So what do you do? Well, you store up weapons. You train an army. And you get ready to fight the next war. And guess what? So does our enemies. Those of us old enough to remember the Cold War, uh, you remember learning in school about the doctrine of deterrence, nuclear deterrence. We learned that if we have enough nuclear weapons so that they can survive a nuclear first strike, the Russians, the Soviet unions, would not dare to attack us. It was called mutual assured destruction. That was the foundation of peace during the Cold War. That is not the kind of peace that God makes. They would beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What Micah is saying is this. There is a peace that de does not depend on deterrence. There is a peace that does not depend on my ability to strike back. There is a peace that does not depend on accumulating mass of army and weapons to intimidate other people so they don't dare attack us. Instead, there is a peace where the nations of the earth gather together and they take their tanks and their artillery and their rockets and their planes and their submarines and they repurpose them for what is good for human life. Like farming equipment. And not just will the nations get rid of their weapons. They stop training for war. I grew up admiring those in the military tradition. My dad was a major in the Taiwanese Air Force. One of my uncles was actually a, a captain in the Taiwanese Navy. And had things gone according to my plans, I would have attended West Point and had a career in the US Army. I think that the study of military arts is critical and central because they provide the security and the protection of our country. Those in the military tradition, the military community, they are the first in line to defend the rest of us. So those of you right now, those of you who, are, who have been in the military, those of you who, who are serving the military right now, I just want to say thank you for your service. And can we give them a round of applause? I also have bad news for you. You're going to be out of a job in the last days. By the way, preachers and pastors were out of a job too. So, but that's a different sermon. Okay. That's a different sermon. But, but here's the thing. In that day, West Point was shut down. Academies for training for the military arts will shut down. They will come to an end. So, so what Micah is saying is there's a, there's a peace in which there's no more fighting, the weapons are destroyed, no more training for war. Why will that happen? Well, two things. Number one, everybody will have what they need. This verse right here, sitting under their own vine and sitting in their own fig tree, that's an ancient Israelite image of contentment. You, you, you have to have an image in your head of kind of a Mediterranean setting, right? You have vines, and you have, you have fig tree, rows of them, and you have, this, you have this farmer, and he's not working his tail off, or, or she. They're sitting down under their fig tree, and the, under the vines, and they're sitting there, and they're going like this. And they're looking at their field, and there's harvest coming up, and there's growth coming up. They have everything they need to prosper for the good life. 
It's a picture of contentment. And number two, no fear. No fear that somebody will come along and rob and take and steal. No fear that another country will rise and launch a war of aggression. None of that. So how will this happen? And we come to the most important line of this entire passage. For Yahweh Almighty has spoken. For Yahweh Almighty has spoken. It is Yahweh himself who guarantees this peace. This is not just absence of conflict. It is a peace of, with prosperity for all and security for all. Yahweh underwrites this peace on earth. World peace. That's what we're talking about. Right? It's the dream of mankind. It's what we yearn for, world peace. It's why they actually created the United Nations. Um, if, you, if you actually look at this particular wall in the United Nations Plaza, it actually has this carved on it. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. Sound familiar? Or, or how about the statue? Right on the grounds of the United Nations. It's a statue given by the Soviet Union to the UN in 1959, and it is a man beating his sword into plowshare. This is what we yearn for. This is what we humanity desperately want. In Micah chapter 4, Micah explains this great vision. Right? Micah explains this great vision in, in, in this passage, and, and our world wants it. But the problem, they always cut out the last line. Right? They, they like to quote these, these verses here. Right? They want to quote these verses. You got, you got weapons being destroyed. You got no more war here. You got uh, no more training for war. You got contentment. Everybody have what they need. They have no fear. They like this part. And then when it comes to the last line, they go, no, thank you. You, you have to understand this dynamic, okay? Our world has been deeply impacted by the Bible. Human rights. The, the, the struggle against slavery, the struggle against exploitation, the freedom of conscience, protection for property rights, racial reconciliation, goes on and on and on. The world borrows from the Bible, but they don't want the God that goes with it. They say, hey, the Bible has some really cool ideas, but we don't want the God who can actually make it happen. Here's my question. Here's my question. Does anybody out there seriously think that we human beings have the capacity, the wisdom, the temperament to make world peace happen on our own? Anybody? And if so, <laughs> then all of this, without the last line, unicorns and puppy dogs, pretty sounding words that mean absolutely nothing. That final line is everything. That final line is everything. Our God. Our God is the peacemaking God. Our God has the wisdom to resolve disputes. Our God has the power to guarantee security. Our God says, hey, when, when the, in the time when I reign, I can make this happen. No, 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 I will make this happen. The world will be transformed one day. And because of that, He's a God worth our worship. Verse 5. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, Micah says, but we, oh, we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God forever and ever. Here's the payoff. Worship. 
right? Why do we worship God? Because we know who he is. We don't just worship him because he is powerful. He is powerful. We worship him because he is good. He has this grand vision for our world, and he has the wisdom and the power to pull it off. That's the God we worship. We worship a peacemaking God. Well, actually, I could stop there. <laughs> That'd be a good place to end the talk, and we sing some songs celebrating God's grandeur and his power and what he's going to do on this world. It's going to be great, except for the fact that there's something else going on in this passage that's pretty important. Not least because I think it's actually Micah's main point. Okay. So, so here's the thing, okay? I'm, I'm, okay I want to be clear. Micah does teach that our God is a peacemaking God, but there's something else going on here, and I can show it to you better if I show you the, the verse right before this passage. It's chapter 3, verse 12, the verse right before. It reads like this. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Do you guys remember this verse? Did I ring a bell? This was part of the judgment section in one of the sermons by Pastor Chris Kopp. We have a lot of Chris's here. <laughs> so this was a part of a sermon called Leaders Leave Awake. And, and, and the you here, he's talking about the leaders of the people, right? And, and this is the passage where God says, because of the corruption of the leaders, Zion, Jerusalem, and the temple will be destroyed. Right? And these are not three different places, okay? The temple is in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is actually built on Mount Zion. So it's all talking about the same place, okay? And, and the destruction of these three things, they symbolize destruction of God's covenant people. Okay. So what's next verse? Apologies, the, the font's a little small here. But I want to show you these two First passages next to each other, right? You see, here's Zion. That's the mountain. That's the mountain. You have the mountain here. You have the mountain here. You have the mountain here. Oh, yeah, Zion down here. You have Jerusalem. Boom, right there. You have the temple. Temple, temple. Do you see it? Okay. The previous passage is God's promise of destruction and judgment against Zion, Jerusalem, temple, representing the people of God. Immediately after that, we have this exaltation of Zion, Jerusalem, temple. Okay? Now, people who study Micah, they, they tell us that these two passages are put together next to each other intentionally. Okay? There's judgment and there is hope. And the hope is not just that the people will come back from exile and, or, or that the temple will be rebuilt and that Jerusalem will be populated again. But no, 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 no. It's talking about the exalted role that people of God will play in this grand vision of world peace. But let's dive in real quick. Let's dive in. Right. In the last days, the mountain of Yahweh's temple will be, will be the highest of the mountains. Okay, Micah is not saying that somehow Mount Zion is going to get really, really tall. It's talking about its reputation. The people in the world are going to go, whoa, 
That's an amazing people. We admire people over there. In fact, the people will come and they will stream to this mountain. They will stream there. Now, this is a perfect verb, perfect translation. What it translates is this Hebrew, Hebrew verb that's talking about river flowing. So you have this image in your head of a river of people, watery people, flowing upward. And who are these people? It just changed color on me. That's awesome. <laughs> Nations. Nations are going to go there. Who are the nations again? The Goim, the ethnic groups, the different people groups. They're all going to gather. They're going to go to the mountain of God. They're going to go to Zion. They're going to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because we want to go and learn. We're going to go learn from people from them because we want to live in peace. Do you see that? That this passage is not just about God making peace. It's also about the people of God, right? The teaching they're coming from Jerusalem, from Zion. Imagine world, there's crisis, there's conflict going on. And so what do people do? They say, hey, you know what? We need to send some people to Jerusalem. We need to send people over there to learn from Yahweh how to make peace. And we're going to bring it back. And this is the way in which God establishes peace on earth. This passage is about our God being a peacemaking God, using his people to make peace. Do you see that? Now, Micah is talking in the Old Testament, and for him, this is all happening over here. World peace. But we live in the aftermath of Jesus' coming. We're in the New Testament. So, what does it look like for us? So, this is our, our, our timeline, right? So, here's Jesus on the cross, dying for us, and then resurrecting, and then ascending into heaven, and becoming the king of this new kingdom of God. It's already started. And, and the community that he built, the people that he built, that's the church, that's God's new people. We're God's new covenant people, and we're part of the kingdom of God, except this broken world is still here. And so we all live here, living in this tension between these two worlds. So how does Micah's vision apply to us? Well, the part that talks about everything hunky-dory and the world is at peace, that's clearly in the future. That hasn't happened yet. That'll happen when Jesus returns and establishes his, his reign on earth fully. However, the thing about the kingdom of God is that whatever is in the future has a way of starting and finding its start at the beginning. The New Testament tells us Okay? The New, New Testament tells us that the foundation for world peace has been laid by Jesus dying for us on the cross. Here's Colossians chapter 2, chapter 1. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There's a lot going on there. Okay? But the idea is this, God is reconciling, God is making peace through the whole universe. He's pulling everything together, and he's going to do that. He's going to make everything to be at peace through the blood of Jesus on the cross. Okay? Foundation for peace is placed on the love and self-sacrifice of Jesus. Now, what is this peace? Well, the first peace there is, is the peace between God and humanity. 
Jesus' death on the cross reconciles us because God, Jesus takes our sins and he nails it on the cross and he kills it. Our sin is dead. Okay? That's the first piece that Jesus makes. But you know he makes also a second piece? He kills not only our sins, he kills ethnic hatred on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2. For Jesus himself is our peace between us, who has made the two groups one, I'll explain that in a bit, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, and thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This passage is talking about ethnic hatred. And he's talking about the two groups, the Jews and the ethnos, the ethnic groups of the nations. And he's saying, on the cross, the hostility between the ethnic groups is destroyed. How does that happen? Well, it happens because Jesus on the cross created this thing called the one new humanity. Okay? On the cross, Jesus creates a new people, a, 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 a new type of humans drawn from all different ethnic groups, different language groups, different na national groups. By the way, this is the church, okay? Drawing them together and then killing ethnic hatred in this group of people. Okay? Distrust, fear, superiority killed off so that we can love each other. So that instead of feeling that like, like I, uh, I, I don't, my, my group is better than their group. No, no, no. Instead, oh, your group is different. Wow, I'm really interested. I want to hear your story. I want to learn your perspective. I want to learn from you. I want to see how you see God differently from how I see God. Do you see that? Do you see that this passage says that the church is a community where ethnic hostility has been put to death? Do you see how a community like that might become a place, might become the God's tool for making world peace? Do you see how a community known and recognized by the world as a place where, where, where ethnic hostility is gone, replaced by mutual love, mutual submission, mutual service, might be a place where world leaders would call and go, hey, how do you guys do that? When you have people who are like, we're so sick of war, so sick of violence, so sick of anger and hatred. And they look at the church and they go, hey, show us what you have. Show us how you're doing it. Do you see how that might happen? Our God is a peacemaking God, and Jesus created a peacemaking church on the cross. Now, some of you are thinking, Charles, are you saying that if we do church right Presidents and prime ministers are going to call us up and ask us about the Middle East? You got it. That sounds preposterous. Yes, it does, because we don't know who we are. We think church, and we think, oh, our friends and family, people we see on Sundays, life group people, normal, average people, right? We look, at, we look at Micah chapter 4, we go, oh, 
Well, God's going to make world peace. Awesome. Go, God. Yay, God. Go, God. Great vision, God. And God's like, you have no clue the role I want you to play in this vision. You have no clue who you are. Look, people, we are called to be a community where different ethnic groups come together, casting away fear and distrust and hatred and hostility and join to love and serve each other in order to shine like a beacon in this dark and broken world that is wrapped by ethnic hatred and ethnic warfare. Our God is a peacemaking God, and we are a peacemaking church. Now, I know this sounds very far-fetched. Sounds crazy. Like, world leaders coming to us, asking for help. Not going to happen. Not believable. You're right. It's not believable. Because that's not where we start. Okay? That's not what we aim for. Here's where we start. We start by aiming to be a community that Jesus died to create. We start by aiming to become a community where ethnic hostility is put to death. Before we can become peacemakers, we have to first be at peace. So, so here's, here's, here's my challenge to you, okay? Two, two next steps, two next steps. Number one, number one. And this should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, disdain for a person of a different color, of a different race, different ethnicity, different nationality, different language is wrong and has no place in the people of God. None. Now, that's really easy to say. But man, is it hard. We live in the aftermath of so much hatred and anger and violence and conflict. It is in the air that we breathe. It is what we're wired for. That when we see a person who is different from us, initial reaction is fear. It's wanting to turn away, wanting to draw away. That's how we're wired. That's how we're built. And so we need the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. So step number one. Today, after the talk, we're going to have just a couple minutes. We're going to give some space for the Holy Spirit to do some excavation work in our lives. For us to explore how this broken world has made their home in us. So we can cast away whatever we have in terms of ethnic hostility. Challenge number two. To become a, a community that has put to death ethnic hostility, we need to become learners because this world is a complex place. Right here in Black Hawk Chinese ministry, we have people from mainland, from Hong Kong, from Mongolia, from Taiwan. We have the Han ethnic group, and then we have a bunch of other minority groups. If you know a little bit about China, you know the difficult waters that we're navigating. In our fledgling Spanish language group, there are already over 10 countries represented. That's 10 different value systems, 10 different history, 10 different cultures, 10 different worldviews. That's a lot of complexity to negotiate. And then here in this country, we have a difficult history. And we have complex relationships among all the different ethnic groups here in America. For a church to become multicultural, for a community to put ethnic hostility to death, we actually need to become learners. So this is the last Sunday in the, in the, in the month of May. I'm challenging you this coming month in June, do one concrete act of learning. Whether it's picking a book and reading with some friends, whether it's having somebody you already know who's, who's, who's 
at work or at school, somebody of a different background, different ethnic group, appropriately approach the person and get to know them better. Know more about their background. Know more about their history. If, if you want to, um, go to this resource page, resource page. Under the Faith and Faith Resources, blackout.church slash race hyphen faith, or use your, do the QR code. If you don't have your phone up early enough, we're gonna do, put this up again later, when, uh, later at the, in, in the service. So have your phone ready, okay? Go there. There are lists of podcasts, there's sermons, there's books re recommendation, all kinds of material. Pick one, read it, watch it, listen to it. Learn something on this topic because we wanna be a community that puts to death ethnic hostility. Look, we, we, we look out there and we see warfare based on that ethnic hatred. We, we see the, the violence in our own country because of ethnic hatred. The horrific shootings in, 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 in Laguna Wood, California in the Taiwanese church. That, that horrific scene in, in Buffalo, New York, in that supermarket. There are no words for what this has done to our world. And it, be, it can easily become despairing and say, nothing you can do. This is just how the world is broken. But we are different. We have hope. We do not despair because we worship a peacemaking God. And he will remake this world. And more than that, he calls us, this community, to show the world the kind of peace that God can create. So let us become a community where ethnic hostility goes to die. The question for us today is not, why is the world so dark? The question for us today is, why doesn't the church shine brighter? Imagine with me a world in which the church is known for a place that ethnic hostility has ceased, that there is love, service, mutual understanding, putting forth other groups ahead of our own, going beneath, putting our interests aside. Imagine that world, a church known for that. Imagine Blackout. We, we've been on this journey toward becoming a multicultural church. Imagine that we keep making progress. We become a place where we, we love each other and know each other across racial lines, racial barriers, across language barriers, across ethnic barriers. Imagine the impact that would have on our community. The people of Madison coming and say, hey, how are you doing that? That's our calling. That's Micah's vision for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to be a people that makes peace. We want to be the people that you called us to be, that you created on the cross where ethnic hostility is dead. We know it's not. But that's what we, we want. Your, your Bible says these amazing things about us that, that it's like mind-boggling how you see us and how it's different from how we see ourselves. 
And Father, we want to adopt your glasses and we want to see us through your lens. And we want to be the people that you created us to be. So help us do that, Father. Help us be the place where ethnic hostility goes to die. We need your power. We need your Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. For your glory, for the sake of, your, for the, sake of the world, we pray in Jesus' name.